Hi, everyone, and welcome to the panel podcast. Um, I'm Jeff Pascoe, your host. Welcome to the show. It's really great to have you all here. Um, I'm really excited today to welcome back to the show a really good friend of mine um, and somebody who's got a really powerful story to share and tons of wisdom. Um, uh, Anna Evans, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, James. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it, it's really great to have you back here, uh, and yeah, um, it's always lovely to talk to you. Um, so, uh, and we've got some interesting stuff to talk about because um, we've just had a change of president, and the, I think the last time you were on, you told a bit of your own story of, um, you know, narcissistic abuse. Uh, and what that um, what that was like, and um, and the kind of experience of getting free, and I wanted to talk about um, the change of president because I know, and I've seen this on social media with a lot of people, uh, where living under Donald Trump's presidency was like a traumatic experience. It was a trigger. Basically, the entire presidency was a trigger. Uh, and when it ended, there was a sense of grieving, a sense of relief, uh, of release as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, kind of a dealing with what had happened and moving on. And so I want to kind of explore that with you today because I think it might be helpful for a lot of people. Um, so... Just briefly tell us a bit of your story and then then maybe go into how the presidency of Donald Trump kind of was a was a trigger for that. Okay. So <clears throat> I grew up in a very, very abusive home. My um, stepdad was definitely a narcissist, a malignant narcissist. And, um, you know, you, you kind of grow up in that environment and you decide at some point, this isn't who I want to be. This isn't where I want to be. This isn't the kind of people I want to be involved with. Um, but then when you leave home, at least it was true for me, like you don't have any tools to even begin to understand what healthy relationships look like. So we tend to be drawn towards the familiar. And in my case, the familiar ended up being a, a very abusive partner. And, um, uh, I was with him for a very short time, and but when I did try to leave, um, he stalked me for two and almost two and a half years. Um, so there were multiple court cases. At one time, there were actually ten active court cases against him, um, for ranging from assault, uh, property damage, um, also uh, violating restraining orders or protective orders that had been put in place. Um, so I actually ended up going through an identity change and leaving the state that is my home for several years. Um, so I, you know, I got a really good, uh, taste of what, what it is like to be in a relationship with someone who is narcissistic and abusive. Um, when I came back and I like, started going through my healing process, you know, one of the big things was like really understanding that there are some people that until they decide 
you know, to make changes, they're, the, the changes aren't going to happen. And so um, kind of learning to understand that the abuse that was coming at me from these folks was not about me, right? It wasn't about choices I had made or who I was or anything else, um, which kind of fed into it because in that narcissistic relationship, you can never do anything right. You know, right side up, upside down, like it's just everything is always in motion. And I think we all experience that to a sense or to an extent while, while Donald Trump was president, right? It doesn't matter what went wrong or what happened. He always had an excuse. He always had somebody else to blame. He always had a finger to point in, in a different direction. And um, for me going through this, it was a huge trigger, like the last four years. It was, um, you know, when I was being stalked during that time, like there were mm. things that were happening that weren't explainable, right? Like he was finding me. I had moved multiple times. I had changed jobs. He had found me. There was no, um, there was no definitive truth. There was no definitive, like I could point to that thing and tell you why he kept finding me. What I ended up finding out like after court cases were done was that the bondsman, the bail bondsman he was using, he had befriended the private investigator for him and he's the one who was finding us. So after the fact, I had answers, but while you're in it, you can't explain it to yourself. You can't explain it to the police. You can't explain it to the courts. And so I think that was a lot of the familiarity I felt with him is like, he just felt slick. Like he was just always, you know, moving and convincing people that black was white and the sky was pink. And you kind of stand in that going, wow, how do so many people believe this? You know? Um, and so it was, it was interesting. I carried a lot of judgment for the folks who were following him, for the folks who were believing him. And, um, I'm, I'll tell you, um, watching the impeachment, the second impeachment hearings, I think the impeachment managers did a beautiful job. Um, and it kind of helped me to settle down into, regardless of what we think of him, he was the president. And as the president, he was telling folks lies. He was telling folks that, you know, the election was rigged, that this cheating had happened, even though there was no verifiable proof for it. They went through all of these multiple court cases, right? And mm -hmm. yeah. and folks are still following him, still believing him. And the fact is, he was the president. So if you believe in him, if you voted for him, why would you believe he was telling you lies about this thing that happened? Right. And so it creates this dynamic where people are literally living in two different worlds. And and so how then do you find reconciliation in that? And that lines up really well, especially with folks who are in domestic violence situations with narcissists, where. You know, a lot of times I'll tell you, my dad was successful. We lived in a nice house. We lived in a nice town. Everything looked really, really pretty. And so for you to come out and try as a child or a teenager to explain like what was happening 
when, you know, not a lot of the abuse was physical. It was all mental. It was emotional. It was making you believe you were crazy, that the truth was flexible to say the least. <laughs> and um, yeah. So watching him, it was almost an, like I couldn't look away. It felt really dangerous to look away from him because you didn't know what he would be lying about next, what he would be telling folks who were following him next. And I say this like that's a distant thing, but I have friends, I have families who were Trump supporters. And so to watch him do what he was doing was harming not just myself, but other people of color, um, other people in the LGBTQ community. Um, it just there, it felt like there was a lot of fear for the damage that could be done, both emotionally, physically you know, financially to people. And, and part of it was in my experience, having become an advocate and an activist, having been, you know, part of bills that were turned into law. So, you know, interacting with the legislatures, interacting with the, the different components of the criminal justice system, and even interacting with inmates in the, in the department of corrections, like, you, you, you have, or I have a different view of, of all of the things that were happening just based on what my own, ex, my own life experience has been. Um, yeah. So part of it was like, I don't understand like how, and the other part is I've been watching this happen my entire career, my adult career. Um, having people respond in these two different ways to narcissists. So part of it was, I'm afraid to look away. And part of it was, I really want to watch and see like how as a society, we respond to someone like this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it was fascinating to watch from, from afar as well. I think because although in the UK, we've kind of elected our own, a kind of light version of Donald Trump, um, you know, kind of white narcissist, rich. Um, I wouldn't say he's as dangerous um, as, as Donald Trump is, um, or as or as or politically as right wing, which is saying something because he's quite right wing. Um, but but you know, he's still got elected. <laughs> Um, but but seeing Donald Trump, I, mean, I don't think there's any British person who would have voted for Donald Trump. I think I think even even right wingers in this country are like that was crazy. How can you have voted for him? You know, and yeah, and to see the damage that he, that he was doing just by being president, just by like being in office, murdering people that I loved, especially so often. It was horrifying, and then seeing that some of the things he was actually doing, um, you know, um, just yeah, um, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the idea that he could have got a second term is, you know, too scary, too scary to think about, really. Um, and thankfully, he didn't. Well, it really is. I mean, to see how many people followed up and voted for him again 
that's that's still i mean we beat him with 81 million but he still had 75 million people who voted for him and i think part of the struggle is like going back to that piece of like why in their minds why would the president lie to me about what's going on right like he won he's in office there's no like reason for it other than this is who this person is i mean historically even before way before he was president his racism was on display um his classism was on display and so i think i don't know i think sometimes we have to pivot to look at like what is wounded in the folks who are voting for him that they need to especially i'm going to go there the like the evangelical church that are so on fire for him like what wound is it in you that you will set aside all of the claim all of the the beliefs that you claim to stand for and stand in to allow someone like him to represent you i mean that's a that's a pretty big leap um yeah. they say pro-life but then you have like no now what's being clear is it's pro pro-birth like after life once the baby's born there's no support for the moms or the kids and if you happen to be you know a person of color my goodness you know in a, and and an immigrant we can just take your children away from you i don't i don't know like i think that's where the pivot has to come in is that there have to be wounds there deep wounds that would allow someone to step so far out of what they claim to believe and i think the mirror like that it becomes a mirror becomes very difficult for people to face absolutely absolutely uh yeah uh, i agree and yeah, there's so much unresolved grief and trauma uh, in our world, generally. But, like, the rise of Trump amplified this so much. It was, it was as all these people are so entrenched in certainty. They are so afraid of dealing with their own grief and trauma and their own things that they have to unlearn. Like systemic racism and all that kind of thing. Well, I There's think that like that they can't that they will defend it aggressively. Like that they will just believe anything as long as they don't actually have to deal with what's really going on. You know what I mean? Uh, like, yes. Well, and um, it's it's that, and. I think generationally, there are a lot of things that are happening in, in that realm. Um, but it's, but we've been, especially as Americans, right? That rugged individualism, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, you know, you take care of you and yours. And that is a hundred percent in itself at odds with, you know, what as Christians would, would, claim that they believe but the truth of the matter is when it comes down to it they are the most like pick yourself up by your bootstraps like it's 
it's rare to find people who will step in and walk with someone through a, a trauma as opposed to sending thoughts and prayers, right? Or um, yeah. so what does that mean to actually sit down and hear people, you know, hear people's stories, hear people's trauma and accept that we all respond differently to our trauma. We all have to grieve. That is required. It is required to heal from trauma. And yes. as Americans and particularly the American evangelical church, that is not a part of the process. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a story real quick. Um, we've talked a lot about like the, my story and, and what has happened, but I worked at a very large evangelical church in Northern Colorado. Um, I was on staff with the, um, I worked with the recovery program and so just to give you an idea, that recovery program was on Friday nights and we had 150 to 200 people showing up at the recovery program. So wow. it was a very large church. Um, well, you know, we had some trauma in our family. My ex-husband and my son both had significant um, mental health crises about six months apart. Um, because of it, we were in the process of losing our home. Um, they were both very, very sick. My son was having consistent and constant suicidal ideation. Um, and I was struggling. Um, one, I was triggered from my own past trauma, but two, like here were these two people that I loved tremendously who were just coming apart at the seams. And I remember talking to my boss, who mind remember she was the head of the recovery program. Like she she led that entire that entire program. And I was talking to her about all of this. And her response as I'm like just pouring myself out to her was very pat, like don't let anyone or anybody steal your joy, anyone or anything steal your joy. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Like she wasn't, she didn't open the door and offer a place to grieve. She didn't say, even acknowledge, you know, this is a really hard thing that you're going through and the struggle, like it's real and it's painful and it hurts. It was just a flat, don't let anyone or anything steal your joy and you go figure out what that means. And I, I remember just being devastated by that. Like, how do we not like lift each other up and support each other? Um, even if that meant just a shoulder to cry on for that moment, you know, and hmm. So that was a very real moment for me of they don't really believe things they proclaim and not everyone, please. I don't want to generalize in that way, but in that environment, in that large mega church environment, like there's no, everything is performance, right? The performance on the stage, the big stage on church on Saturday and Sunday, and even in the recovery program, it was set up the same way. So you had your music and your this, but it was all, all about performance. And it was all about programming, 
like like the programs were what was important the men's program the women's program the youth the kids but when somebody was hurting and went to them for help they would be referred to an outside agency to a community organization to help so they weren't really dealing with the trauma of the congregants in the church they were referring them out to other places and you know in the end in the final analysis when it when i look back on everything maybe that was the best thing for people because clearly th this church was not equipped to actually do the trauma work with people mm. and to be able to process through the grief that comes with that and so and and again you know you look at it and i found out very quickly I came to the church because of the pain that I had suffered and I was looking for healing. And I, I want to acknowledge that I did get a lot of healing. I did um, learn a lot through the recovery program because of the recovery program piece of it, like those 12 steps and working through those steps. Yeah. But, and at the end, like there came a point where you hit a wall in that process because you can only heal and do so much when the grief part isn't dealt with. And so at that point was when I stepped away from that church, went to a smaller church where people actually talk to each other, <laughs> right? Like people are actually, the church is in community with each other instead of in cliques with each other which tended to be what happened with the larger model. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I'm, and I resonate with, with that, having been in those kind of communities. Um, yeah. Uh, it's not quite as big as mega churches in America, but still relatively big. Uh, and yeah, you get cliques and you get, yeah. And there's no, there was no questioning. And there's levels of narcissism, right? Like you have yeah. your, your lower level narcissist are running the, the program. And then the head narcissist is generally the, the pastor, the head pastor, right? Yeah. And, and that's yeah. why they fall. That's why we see these, you know, really popular, really outspoken pastors who are out there and they're doing all of, you know, Ideally, we hope that they're trying to do good work, but like when that narcissistic personality comes into contact then with the megachurch where you have all of these thousands of people just hanging on your every word, waiting for you to tell them what to do next, how to respond next, there's no, he there's no chance for healing in that because all it's doing is feeding the narcissism. And so it grows and it grows and it grows. And and then before they know it, before we know it, they're now on national TV talking out, you know, why they had this affair or that they were abusing women or they were abusing people in their church or whatever that looks like. Because we, we put so much, um, we give them so much authority over our lives that it becomes easy for them to be abusive. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. Yeah, and when you're when when you leave it, when you step away from it, it's so much easier to see as well. Uh, when you're in the midst of it, it's you almost don't see it unless you're really looking for it. Like, you know, I remember being in a in a church 
with a very strong part like leadership, uh, quite controlling actually, uh, in a kind of more passive aggressive kind of way. Uh-huh. Uh, and I remember going to another church. The first time I went to a different church, uh, like a really small, quiet, community, like the complete opposite, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember being, I remember breathing out in a spiritual community for the first time for years. And I felt it and I was like, whoa, I haven't breathed out for in church for ages. Like, I've told the story on the podcast, people listen listen to the show will know. And you know, that's when I realized, oh, wow, this is really worse than I thought. You know, and I go back to that church in Nick Creek and I'm all better. My, and I felt myself all physically bound up tight. Mm-hmm. And I was basically performing and reading off a script and like, and I was like, oh my gosh, this has been happening the whole time. And I didn't even know. You know, um, and that's spiritual abuse. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to just name it. That's what it is. And again, it's just this avoidance of dealing with dealing with reality, dealing with what's really going on, and covering it up with performance. Yeah, you're right. Performance, the script, you know, the, the you know, the kind of, yeah. The contradictions are ridiculous, right? So, okay, here's an example. Yeah. When me and my partner Nicole were talking about this the other day. So. When I worked there, again, in the recovery ministry, the team building exercise that we did was they took us to a shooting range to shoot automatic weapons. Okay. I'm just going to leave that there for everyone to deal with that however they need to. Um, But that that was a truth because they had moved into that white nationalistic Christianity, the biblical manhood, the, you know, all, just all of that. And so that was, that was what our team building exercise was. Now, right before I left, part of my job was, uh, while I worked there, was to vet therapists who wanted to be on our referral list. So I had this list I had to go through. And then once I did all of that, I would send it to my boss and she would make the determination of whether they would be put on this list or not. So I had this therapist call and I said, okay, you know, here's all the information. And she looked good. I liked her a lot. And I forwarded her on to my boss. And the response was, no, because I've driven by their offices and they have one of those labyrinth things. So just don't even put her on the list, like cut her off right then. Don't even continue the process. And I was like, well, that's fascinating, really. Um, But when I left the church and we went to a smaller church, it was very an inclusive church. um, And the, the first weekend I went, we got a flyer that said the very next weekend they were doing a silent contemplative prayer um, retreat. And I remember thinking, I need to go to that. I just, and for me, it was just the silence because <laughs> I was still in the middle of everything going on with my son and my ex. And I went and it was a contemplative prayer retreat. And so all through the weekend, we heard from um, readings and, and videos from um, Thomas Merton and Thomas Keating, Richard Rohr. And then intermittently we would have sits where we just sat in contemplative prayer. And I remember on the very last day sitting in prayer and going, this is how. 
this is how I can find peace when everything is falling apart. And it, it, it's in being quiet, not in volunteering more, not of giving more time of my time, not in serving more. And there is a time and place for that. But when you're in the middle of trauma, that's not the answer. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, you know, now that I step away from it, what I was, I mean, kind of laughing about with Nicole when we were talking the other night is, you know, it was okay to go to a shooting range and shoot automatic weapons, but it's not okay to walk the labyrinth. Like how, how twisted and upside down is that? Like how narcissistic is that choice even? Right. I know it's great. It's it's just, it's just that. I mean, I, when you said about the guns, I, I almost, I almost laughed in a way because it's just like, I'm, I'm not even surprised anymore. You know, mm-hmm. um, by that kind of thing, it's just like it's just so it's like laughable that people can do that and think, well, I'm following the way of Jesus, who was about nonviolence and yep. um, <laughs> uh, and would not have not have remotely carried a gun and um, uh, about justice and inclusion and um, actually dealing with real pain and suffering and actually engaging with it not you know not um running away from it right and here's another angle to look at like one of the reasons i was hired on was because of not so much my activism work but my um advocacy work and working with survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault and so that was like a huge like it kept the women who hired me who did my interviews were really excited about that piece of it But once I was hired on, what ended up happening was that, like, I wasn't dealing with or working with um, folks who were in that situation in the church. What would end up happening is they would be referred to me quietly outside of church. Does that make sense? So they wouldn't call me at work. I'd get a phone call at home in the evening or on my cell phone in the evening. And it was from that place that I would help. And it was women in, in this situation, but it was in that case that I would help them by, you know, offering them resources for the area that they lived in. Um, one woman, I actually ended up helping like her get out of her home and took her to a safe house, but that wasn't sanctioned in the church through my job. It was something I had to do like as an aside. And so then that that became my quote unquote ministry, right? Was sick. It was sick. And then to this day, I still work with women from that church, just very on the down low. So like, for example, every year they do a man series, which is the whole biblical manhood, blah, 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 white nationalist, all all of it, all of it. It's still there. They highly promote military um, men and women, which I love the military. I have so many, I have family members, all of it, but the way they do it within the church, it, it kind of minimizes everybody else. Um, so at the end of this, um, series, um, lecture series, then they have the man event, which is basically, they have all the men come in there. They do raffles for, they have four wheelers and guns and band stuff, right? (laughs) James, without fail, every year, the month after that series and that event happened, 
I get anywhere from five to 10 phone calls from women who are saying, help me. I don't know what to do. Like the church is not dealing with his abusive piece, but they're like promoting this whole thing that's happening and it's making it worse. And so what do you do? I'm not going to change that environment. I just continue to work with the women who come forward who need help. Yeah. And it's important that people feel they can come forward to get help as well. Mm -hmm. There's so many. I mean, one of the things I wanted to, to talk about, um, and maybe we'll do that for the next, you know, next section. Like when Donald Trump took office and Joe Biden took the oath of office, there must have been some kind of release, um, some kind of grieving almost of what happens, you know, because obviously. Well, I think people talked about this on social media as well. When an abuser, when an abuser, when you leave an abusive relationship and you move out of the home, that is a whole different. That's a that's a that's a difficult thing to do in itself. Right. And uh, so, what was that like? That that you know, given your experiences, how's how has that been? You know, I think there was some hope like as especially when the um i totally just lost the word as they were doing the trial for him it was you're watching all of this and the i think the way the house managers the impeachment i'm sorry with the way the house managers put the case against him together was brilliant um they showed how he influenced through his lies. Right. And so I think for me, when he got voted out, like there was still a piece of me, like I know from my experience as an advocate and activist and a survivor, how dug in the supporters of an abuser will become. Right. Instead of admitting that that person's an abuser, they will attack the victim relentlessly. They will try to destroy that person's reputation, who they are, like all of it. And so I think for myself and and I I have knowledge of this because of what I went through and because of the work I chose to do afterwards. And so for me, it it wasn't over. You know, for me, I was watching this going um from the election to the when the the insurrection at the capitol happened like everyone was like the elections happened it's over blah 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 i'm like you don't know like we're not even close to being done and so there's a part of me that i'm still not convinced we're done yet you know as long as he has a voice with those followers you know that is is equivalent in my mind to the abusers mother or family who just can't see it. And so they're going to do everything they can to attack the, the folks who are, who are the ones being abused. So I think um, I'm definitely not as hyper vigilant with him. Like I'm offline more. I'm away. Like I don't have to be in the news 27 times a day to see what stupid thing he did or said that day, what cruel thing he did or said that day. Um, but I'm still like 
watching from afar, kind of waiting to see what the people around him are going to do because he has given people permission to be profoundly abusive. And I think we're going to be dealing with this, um, the, the ramifications of it, um, the ramifications of the impact on our relationships with people um, for a very long time. And yeah. so I don't think like my guard is not down. Like the relief is not there a hundred percent yet. I'm glad he's not, I don't, I'm glad he has lost the, having the power of the, the office of presidency and that that's behind him. But I don't, as long as he's got influence on the folks that he got riled up, that he uncovered their narcissistic wounds, um, until we actually deal with that and start having conversations where we're building bridges between folks. Um, for me, it's story is telling um, my story and, and creating space for other people to tell their stories so that maybe people can hear that they're really not as different as he tried to make them believe they are. You know, that, that people are, we're all struggling, whether we're Democrats or Republicans in America, you know, we're all struggling with the same things. We're all struggling with trying to move forward while being, you know, buried under student loan debt or like trying to deal with ridiculous medical bills. Um, and, and we don't, man, we like to fight, you know, Americans like to, to have a cause and somehow he made the cause each other. And how, how now my question is, is how do we start breaking that down and dealing with the wounds that are on both sides to be able to come together. And I'll be honest, like there are some cases even within my own life where I'm like, oof, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'm the person to be able to have those conversations with some folks. Mm. Yeah. So there's hope, but there's still a lot of work to do as always. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And there always yeah. will be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. There's always work to do, isn't there? There's always areas to grow, things to unlearn, things to learn. Yeah. Um, wounds that need healing. It's all, yeah, it's it's, it's one long and, journey. You know, there's safety involved in it. Like, as, as, as I'm talking with, you know, people in different, different places as far as, you know, if you're people of color, if LGBTQ, like marginalized folks, like the, the healing and what we're talking about is like, who do you connect with? Like, it's not always your job to, to fix that abuser. Right. And where's that line for you? Where is like, can you be in relationship at all? Can you be in relationship and not have to deal with that like is this just someone who's close enough that they can hear you but like i think a big part of it is that there are people in our lives who were you know parents and brothers and sisters and you know folks who were best friends who are now like on this track and whether it's you know following trump or falling into the QAnon stuff um which is so much more prolific than I had any idea about. And, the, you know, I've looked at that and holy cow, is that just not a narcissistic cesspool right there? Right. Um, but it's like, 
we have to be able to heal ourselves and to create community around us that is safe and healing. And then we can look outwards, right? But also like protect yourself. Like you don't have to continue being abused. There is nothing, I don't care how close someone was to you. You have, you get to be able to say no, like I'm, I'm cutting this off now. I'm not, I'm not going to, not going to continue to engage here and it's not easy or I am going to continue to engage, but here are my boundaries in that to keep myself Mm -hmm. safe or to keep my kids safe or, you know, whatever that looks like for folks. And I think we're just not used to having to process things in that intensive way. And we're being forced to like the, the outcome of this is like, we really have to look at ourselves and each other and figure out what is it, who is it we want to be? You know, what kind of country do we want to be? And we'll see. I mean, I'm not hopeless, but I'm not super hopeful either. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's grounded. Um, That's, 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 yeah, spot on. Um, Thank you for coming on and sharing your story, Anna. I appreciate it. Um, And your wisdom, as ever. Uh, You have so much wisdom for us all. Um, Where can people connect with you online? Um, Right now, my Twitter feed is It's Always And. um, And that is probably the best place to get a hold of me right now. We're working on... um, building up a podcast around what we talked about, which is talking to folks um, with different stories. Uh, we connected with an international organization around um, violence prevention. So there'll be some exciting stuff coming up there, but I'll be announcing all of that on my Twitter feed. Fantastic. Great. I highly recommend following Anna as well. She's great. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, and thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>